We are going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're almost at the end. We are in Mark's Gospel in the final, uh, well, we're into Friday, which is the final day before Jesus, or the day on which Jesus is crucified. We've been looking at the Passion Week in Mark for the last few chapters, and everything kind of snowballs in Mark as an escalation of intensity as you move towards the crucifixion. We just saw Jesus brought before the Sanhedrin, kind of like the religious authorities who rule in Jerusalem. He self-discloses who he is. I am the Messiah, but I'm also something more. I am the Son of Man, referenced in Daniel 7, who's going to come one day to judge and rule over all the nations, including you. So there's this huge confrontation that ultimately gives the chief priests and the, the Sanhedrin all the evidence they feel like they need to say, yep, blasphemy, now we have the charges that, can, that we can use to just kind of uh, escalate this towards a death sentence for Jesus. What we're looking at today is Mark 14, verses 66 to 72, which probably Mark writes to be more or less concurrent with what he's just included. Um, and, and this will be helpful for you just in terms of visualizing things. Where Jesus is being confronted by the Sanhedrin uh, is a court, and just outside of that court is a gathering area, a courtyard, and that's where Peter is. And so, and that's where this exchange takes place. So it's probably going to be helpful for you to recognize that everything that is being, everything that unfolds in this passage is because, uh, is done with an earshot and eyeshot of what has just been happening to Jesus. Jesus' confrontation with Caiaphas, the high priest, Guards starting to beat Jesus to begin to take him away. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, not meaning below, just the courtyard was uh, a few steps underneath the, uh, the court. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. And again he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. We're looking at easily one of the darkest moments in the Apostle Peter's life. Verse 66 and 67 He's below in the courtyard. Someone who is connected to the high priest and kind of knows the general, knows who's, knows who's supposed to be at a gathering like this, even though it's the early hours of the morning, um, recognizes, oh, this isn't, he's not supposed to be here. I think he was with Jesus. Maybe she saw Jesus and his disciples hanging out in Jerusalem uh, during the week. But she knows, she at least recognizes Peter and maybe saw him in the company of Jesus. She points him out. Uh, Peter denies it. And, and Matthew adds, not to make sure that we kind of understand the full scope of it, he doesn't just mention it to the girl. He kind of makes sure that everyone else who's around can hear that um, he's, 
he's in denial about any association. So he doesn't just address the girl like, no, like, he's like, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, this picture is uh, probably one of my favorite ones of Peter's denial because if you squint, Peter on the left there looks a little like Luke Skywalker from The Last Jedi. <laughs> so it's kind of my favorite, even though Last Jedi was a train wreck of a movie, but that's a sermon for another time. Is that my outside voice? Oh, well. Okay. So you have Peter over here. The courtyard's within view. The servant girl is like, hey, I think I recognize that person. He's one of them. Remember, everyone else within Jesus' kind of inner circle has scattered at this point. They've run away, fearing arrest and reprisal that comes from the Jewish authorities. Peter doesn't fully flee, but he kind of follows at a distance. We read about that last week. And now he's, he's kind of in denial. He wants to disassociate himself from uh, Jesus. Verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you're one of them because you're a Galilean. And you have this, and the the tip off for them is probably a Galilean dialect. You have all the people that are kind of supposed to be there are live and work around Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee's farther to the north, and so the dialect's a little bit different. So they realized, you're not from around here. You, you ha- it would make sense that you're a part of Jesus's kind of posse because you have a Galilean accent. Verse 71. So Peter's been denying, denying. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, you know, trying to uh, feign confusion or just, oh, you've got me for the wrong person. But in verse 71, it escalates And it says, he, Peter, began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And the text does have a hard time conveying um, the the intensity and, and, and kind of the gut punch of calling down curses and swearing. Not swearing in the sense of profanity, but literally swearing, you know, in a sense, on a stack of Bibles, swearing to God that you have no association with this person. And this would have been seen within Jewish culture as being a tremendous betrayal. Cowardly, selfish. He's charged for this third time of being a part of Jesus' disciple, discipleship inner circle. And he becomes desperate. The heat's being turned up. And he begins to curse and to swear. And the word cursed is anathematezo to anathematize, to declare something cursed or anathema. It's the strongest language you could possibly use to distance yourself from an accusation or an association. And there's some, depending on who you read, and there's a lot of um, interesting, it's kind of a rabbit hole of exactly who Peter is cursing. Is he cursing Jesus? Is he cursing God? Is he cursing himself? I think probably the safest interpretation is that he is creating, he's kind of swearing before the people in God's name that he has no association with this Jesus person. And he's kind of calling a curse upon himself as a way to to, um, protect against the accusation that he's kind of hedging his bet. So, you know, we might today say, you know, may such, such and such happen to me if what I'm telling you is false. So may I be cursed if what I'm not telling you is absolutely true. And I swear to God, like God Almighty, the God of the heavens, that I don't know this man. 
you've got the wrong person. So this isn't just kind of a sheepish, like, oh, playing dumb. That may be how, how it starts. I don't really, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. At this point, Peter wants everyone to know that he has no association with Jesus. This is complete denial. This is a complete disownment, disavowment. Verse 72, immediately after this happens, the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And it says that Peter broke down and wept. And again, the language here is difficult to convey the sense of brokenness that Peter feels. Matthew uh, frames the word, uh, in some translations you'll probably have, and Peter burst into tears. The verb wept doesn't just kind of mean like, oh, a tear came to his eye and he was like, oh, I, oops, I think I messed up a little bit. There's a sense of an interior collapse. There's a full weight of guilt and shame, deep, deep shame, that you've kind of come to this place and you kind of throw yourself down. The, the verb for um, wept starts with X, and whenever you have EX in something, it kind of means a tossing or a throwing out or a throwing down. So whether or not he literally collapses on the ground and begins to weep or runs away for a little bit or you know, creates some space and does that, or the scripture is just trying to say, in terms of his reaction, the full weight of what he is doing presses upon him, and he kind of... Um, is com- as a completely broken person. He bursts into tears. He realizes the magnitude of his selfishness and his sin and his failure. And I was thinking about that this week when it talks about how, you know, Peter has this escalation of, in a sense, sinfulness and cowardice. And then it reaches its climax, and it says he broke down and wept. And I think just that line that he broke down and wept, that is sort of a grace note in the passage. Um, I heard someone once, and I don't know where I heard it from, so I, I can't, and I couldn't find the quote, but, you know, and maybe I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but the fact that he actually bursts into tears and says, what have I done? There's at least there a sense of genuine and appropriate shame and guilt and a sense of ownership, right? He doesn't hear the rooster crow, remember Jesus' words and say, well, I mean, I know Jesus said that, but I mean, come on. I mean, look at the, look at the situation that we're in. He doesn't begin to move into rationalization. He doesn't blame other people. He doesn't blame circumstances. He's bursting into tears because he realizes that he and he alone has sinned against Jesus. And the quote that that reminded me of was this. Do not fear the day when you experience deep remorse over personal sin. Fear the day when you don't. Fear the day that when you, by any objective standard, commit grievous sin against God, your reaction is, eh, I guess I'll make sure to just kind of do right with God tonight and we'll get that cleared up. So even though Peter is selfish and he's sinful and he's broken and he's cowardly, the fact that he breaks down and weeps shows that there's still a part of his heart that is soft towards God. 
and is open to recognizing his own brokenness before God. This is a passage, like I said, this is kind of a low-light reel of the Apostle Peter. This is about as bad as it gets in terms of the testimony of the Gospels for a, someone who's eventually going to become a pretty substantial leader in the early church. And it's an awesome story. And it's an awesome account and an example of how Jesus can transform a life, how Jesus can transform someone's character. This gives us an amazing doorway through which to enter the grace and love of God and to move into the gospel in such a way that we're like, wow, this is amazing. It's such a low for Peter, but it can become such a source of encouragement for every single person in this room. Here's why. Look at Peter's character, especially during this last week, but you stretch out in most of Mark's gospel. Maybe four dominant characteristics of Peter's natural uh, character that come to the forefront as the weeks of, or sorry, as the final week, as we move towards the crucifixion. So the first thing that we see in Peter as Jesus gets closer to the crucifixion is pride. Peter boasts in Mark 14, we studied this earlier, that he would never deny Jesus. Other people are going to fall away, not him. I'm at a different level. I have a different level of allegiance towards you, Jesus. Even if I had to die for you, no problem. I'd gladly go to death for you. So as the pressure grows in his life, he displays pride. The second is laziness. When the pressure is really on Jesus in Gethsemane, in the place of the olive press, and Jesus is sweating blood and he needs support, Peter and James and John are sleeping, repeatedly sleeping, not, not being awake and watchful and with Jesus, not being present with him. They're kind of spiritually apathetic and disconnected from what's happening. At a time when he needed to be watchful, Peter just regresses again and again to his own comfort and his own laziness. Number three, cowardice. We just read last week that, yes, Peter doesn't scatter. He follows Jesus, but it says he followed Jesus from a distance to make sure that he wasn't singled out as someone with Jesus and Jesus' kingdom of God movement. So he's very strategic but how he follows Jesus so that he doesn't incriminate himself. He's following Jesus at a distance, which is clearly evidence of, of cowardice, especially in light of the fact that he says, if anyone else denies you, I'm not going to do it. I'm willing to die for you. So he's big talk, but when it comes down to it, he's just as selective about exactly how to posture to people around him so that he doesn't get in trouble, so that he doesn't have any repercussions of following Jesus. He wants to avoid ridicule. He wants to avoid persecution. And he's sizing up the environment around him to say, okay, this is how I kind of have to act and talk and think, and that'll be safe for me. So cowardice is another massive element of Peter's character and his fault line. And then number four is worldliness. And this is maybe a little bit of a leap, but I think some commentators that I read do a good job of, of kind of teasing this out. It talks in Mark fourteen fifty four that Peter follows Jesus from a distance, but also that Peter warms himself by the fire. And again, there's this metaphor. You're seeing these two contrasting paths as Jesus becomes more and more exposed physically and spiritually and emotionally and relationally and vulnerably. And as more and more of the protections and comforts around Jesus get pulled away, and he 
ultimately uh, stands before Caiaphas, completely vulnerable, Peter is looking for ways to kind of bubble wrap himself. And a lot of commentators say, you know, notice that, you know, when Mark puts in a detail, which Mark tends not to do, but the fact that Mark says, and Peter was warming himself by the fire, there's this draw towards making sure that my comfort is taken care of. And so you're, you're meant to see um, in the preceding passage and this one, this divergence between Jesus moving into his calling, but moving into greater exposure to risk because of it. And then there's Peter who's shrinking from his calling and what he's defaulting to is worldly comforts. Now, I want to be clear. When I say worldliness, I'm trying to use that word in a very precise way, and that is the way Scripture uses it, which does not mean involvement with the world in a, in a general sense, like we go to work and do things. That's not worldliness. Worldliness is kind of a catchphrase that is meant to uh, capture the idea of any way of living where you're not living in a way where you're trying to honor God. So um, it, it has nothing to do with, in a sense, your daily engagement in and of itself. It's are you engaging your everyday life, your relationships, your finances, your jobs, in a way that you're striving to honor God, then those pursuits are not worldly. Those are godly, holy pursuits. If we're doing those things, not through the lens of how do I honor God, how do I bless my neighbor, but instead saying, how do I keep myself warm? How do I keep myself well-fed? How do I maximize pleasure for myself? That's worldly. So worldliness isn't, in a sense, what you do as much as it is for whom you're doing it. But Peter here is not structuring his life such that Jesus has the comfort of saying, you know what, Jesus, everyone else is abandoning, abandoning their post. I'm not abandoning my to- post. It's you and I before Caiaphas. I'm willing to get rung through too, if this is what it means. Peter's like, oh yeah, like this is not kind of playing out the way that I thought. So I'm gonna distance myself. And so he's kind of influenced by this by this kind of a very worldly view, which would say, it's good to help other people, but not at the cost of yourself. Like, have some common sense and make sure that, you know, your needs are taken care of first. If you have extra that you want to give and help, that's fine, but don't do so in a radically self-sacrificial way. Social and physical comfort, relational comfort, those take precedence over truth and over a godly witness to the world. That's what Peter's being seduced, at least by his actions, into conforming to. Now just pause for a moment and think about those four character traits. You could certainly argue character fault lines that show up in Peter's life, even just in these last few chapters in Mark. Pride, laziness, cowardice, and worldliness. Pride, laziness, cowardice, and worldliness and I want you to ask yourself, do any of those characteristics remind you of anybody? My neighbor. My neighbor. <laughs> Maybe there's certain people in stories in the scripture where you're like, oh, yep, yeah, I know. Maybe there's certain people, whether at work or at home, and we're like, yep, yeah, that, wow, you know, mm, I wish they were here to hear this message because this is for them. But Mark wants to see that maybe not all these, but much of these exist in our own heart as well. 
especially when the temperature gets turned up and there's a choice between obeying Jesus in a way that's going to lead to sacrifice or keeping quiet, holding back, blending in, warming ourselves by the fire, and then it's Jesus or other people's problems. Self-protection. I look at this list, and for me, all of these, and I know it's maybe the same for everybody, but all of these were a dominant part of my personality character structure before I became a Christian. And these have been areas where God has been working uh, deeply for a long time, seriously, uh, for decades since turning my life over to Jesus. And some of these still hold sway in my heart more than others. But I look at these four things, and I think part of how I see my, so much of myself in Peter is because these fault lines come so naturally to me. It's so easy for me to operate out of pride. It's so easy for me to not be faithful to what I've been called to do and to be lazy and to kind of collapse into, a, what about me? What about my needs? I don't, you know, it's a little bit different because I became a Christian when I was 14. So it's not like, I mean, your brain is still forming and there's lots of immaturity. But I don't remember ever, and I'm sure I did, but I don't remember really ever thinking about the needs or cares of other people before I became a Christian. Like, I'm sure I did, but I was not like a naturally compassionate kid or anything like that. I just remember thinking life is about me having fun with my friends, playing video games, playing sports. Uh, what's the minimum I need to do in school? What's the minimum amount of responsibility that I need to attain just to get through stuff? And how do I just maximize my own life enjoyment? Now, again, I was you know, 13, 14 years old, but I think these patterns are characteristics that the Bible says, broadly speaking, these characteristics tend to inhabit the heart of people who have, not come into the, who have not come into contact with the grace and love of Jesus. Maybe not all of them equally, but you live long enough, you reflect on your story long enough, and not in a, not in a um, condemnatory, kind of judgy, holier-than-thou way, but if you just observe human behavior, pride, laziness, cowardice, worldliness, these are things, again, that you don't really tend to have to teach people they just come very naturally. You have to really swim upstream if you want to move away from these things in your life, especially, again, when the choice is between um, living into your uh, calling as an image bearer of God, doing the right thing. A lot of people, like Peter, will boast, oh, I'm different than other people. I don't have an issue with pride. I don't have an issue with laziness. I don't have, a, you know, other people do. I don't. But then when the rubber meets the road, there's a shrinking back. And pride and laziness and cowardice and worldliness, not in small ways, but when they dominate our behavior, when they dominate our mentality, I would say those are evidences of a life that has not actually been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the lenses you can look at in terms of what does it mean that we're all sinners is that what it means is generally speaking, the default position of the human heart and human action and human behavior towards God and towards other people is pride and laziness and cowardliness and worldliness. And so Peter's story is really important because it shows us our own hearts 
And it also shows us that without God's gracious interference, each of our stories would end as tragedies. There would be no happy ending for anyone's story in this room if God just let the natural inclinations and behaviors of who we are play out without any kind of interference, without any kind of intervention. We are not able to save ourselves because while we might have moments of humility and moments of heroism and moments of choosing truth over falsehood, the overall momentum of our lives and hearts, individually and collectively, is defined by those four things. And I think it's difficult to have an honest assessment of human culture and to come up with a different conclusion. Without God's gracious interference, each of our stories would end as tragedies. And I love this passage, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. I put it on the screen because this, is, this speaks directly to this point. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, As for you, you Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Strongest language possible. You weren't just lost. He goes to the language of you were dead. In which you used to live, these transgressions and sins, these used to be, the, this is water you used to swim in. It was natural for you. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Again, Paul's like, it's not like there was two types of people, sinners and not sinners. We were all there. We were all gratifying the cravings of our flesh, meaning sinful impulses, and, and following its desires and its thoughts. And like the rest, we were, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were all living, ignoring God, ignoring his call in our lives, saying, I hear your rules. I'll either take them on advisement thanks but no thanks, or just outright complete rejection and mutiny against God. And we were deserving of his punishment because he had made us to image himself and his goodness into the world. And we said, yeah, we have a different plan, thanks. And we sow chaos and destruction and hatred and genocide and uh, falsehood. Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Think about what Paul is saying there. As for you, and by the way, all of us, I'm talking about all of us, we all lived in the same boat. As for us, we were all dead in our transgressions and sin. All of our stories were headed towards tragedy. No one was coming out of this with a happy ending in ways big or small, in this life or in the life, life to come. But God, but God didn't just allow our self-destructive, anti-God, anti-life, anti-human scripts to just play out according to what we wanted to write. He intervened. He interfered. He came and walked among us because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, meaning he didn't say, oh, look at you. You're pretty awesome. Like, you are a very different kind. You're a better human being than other people. I'm going to save you. You've earned it. No, we were all in the same boat. We're all broken. And God said, I'm not saving you because you're so great and mighty. I'm saving you because you're so little and lost. Because of my mercy, not because of your goodness. It's my righteousness and faithfulness 
that's going to define the story, not your righteousness and faithfulness. And I want to show you, I want to leap ahead in the story of how coming into contact with that grace, of experiencing the risen Jesus and his grace and forgiveness, how it transforms a life. So this is John chapter 21. This is John's account of what happens to Peter after Jesus has been resurrected. I'm going to read through verses 1 to 17. But up until this point, this betrayal, this disownment of Peter has been the thing that I'm sure Peter says, well, this is going to define my life. And we actually, we know he thinks that. And we'll get to that in a second. John 21, verses 1 to 17. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Have you ever screwed up so badly in your life that you've assumed you've essentially disqualified yourself from Jesus' love, from his mission, from his calling on your life? And so what you're going to do is you're going to go back to your old life. Right? Peter, I'm going to call you rock, and on your confession that I am Lord, I'm going to build my church. I got big plans for you, Peter. Peter has an epic fail. And now, Peter's like, yeah, that, that's over. it's over for me. I've disqualified myself. Let's, let's go back to being fishermen. We always were fishermen. We were stupid to believe. We could have been anything other than fishermen. Jesus pegged us wrong. We had ourselves wrong. We had our hopes up. Those hopes are dashed. Let's just go back to the life that we know. I certainly don't deserve to be a disciple of Jesus because of the way that I betrayed him. Verse 3, so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he called out to them and he said, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, but about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw fire bur- a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even so, even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, just imagine how awkward that would have been for Peter. How much do you think he says? Probably nothing, right? Does he even look at Jesus? Look him in the eyes? I don't know. That's astounding, but also very awkward. (laughs) 
When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And take care of my sheep. And the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him about the third time, asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter comes in contact with the risen Jesus who doesn't bring a message of condemnation but of restoration and redemption and reconciliation. And then Jesus says, go and wait for the gift that I'm going to give you. The Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to leave. The Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to pray. And this time Peter is not unfaithful in prayer. Read Acts chapter 1. He prays with people for almost 40 days. And then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is given, and Peter is the one that stands up and gives the first, in a sense, sermon to the nations. And thousands of people are saved. Remember the four character traits that define Peter's life pride and laziness and coward, cowardice and worldliness. And now listen to Peter's own words when he writes his epistle. And his first one, just First Peter. Just read through First Peter after this message today. Just read through First Peter and think about the journey that Peter's been on. Because it reveals how his heart and his character has been transformed by Jesus. His heart has been radically changed from a place of pride to humility. In a culture of pride, Peter, this leader in the church, says to new Christians, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. He moves from laziness to diligence to those tempted to apathy and laziness and spiritual sloth. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and be sober-minded. Don't fall asleep. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him and stand firm in the faith. Don't follow Jesus at a distance. Don't warm yourself by the creature comforts of this world. Number three, his heart is transformed from a place of cowardice to one of boldness to hearts that are gripped by cowardice especially if boldness means suffering for Jesus, Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, 1 Peter 4.16, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed when people say, hey, are you with Jesus? Don't shrink back like I did and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Take it as a badge of honor that you get to carry the name of Jesus. 
and suffer for doing what is right. And his character is transformed from worldliness and self-absorption and self-centeredness and self-comfort to one of holiness. To Christians who are lulled by the siren song of a culture that encourages worldliness at every turn, your pleasure, your happiness, those are the things that you're supposed to be striving after, says the world. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, you can't fit into this world because in Christ you're not made for this world anymore. You're not a part of this world. You, not, let me clarify that. You're not, a, you're not of this world anymore. You're for this world. I'm going to use you to impact and love this world. But you can't live in the pattern of this world anymore. You have to understand you're now a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of heaven. So your time here, you have to think of yourself as an exile. You're a foreigner in a foreign land. So you have to act differently. You are to be a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation before God that stands out to the world around you because of your love and grace and your willingness to be counted among those who follow Jesus. When I look at that shift in Peter's life, I do think in broad strokes, that's what happens when your heart is touched and transformed by Jesus' love and grace. And it doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen for me. But God has been at work in my life. And God is powerfully, was powerfully at work in Peter's life. And so never let anybody convince you. Never listen to any voice. I don't care if the voice is external or it's internal. Never listen to any voice that tries to convince you that God can't redeem foolish sinners, selfish cowards, or epic failures. You've got to reject those voices at every turn. They're unbiblical and they're false. God did it with Peter. He's been doing it with Christians for 2,000 years. And part of the Bible's witness is it's one of the things that he does the best. One of the things that God is supremely good at is redeeming foolish sinners and selfish cowards and epic failures and then using them for his glory. And so this morning, go to Jesus. Because though your failures and your sinfulness may be great and you may weep and be brokenhearted over the state of your sin, your sin is no match for his redeeming love. Let's pray. God, show us your truth. Show us your love, a love that is stronger than death, a love that is stronger than the voice of condemnation that the enemy throws at us, that Sometimes we throw it ourselves. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love. God, thank you that you are a God who restores. Thank you that you are part of what brings you tremendous joy is to flip the script.
And as our lives are playing out as tragedies, you intervene and save us and set us on a new path. Give us a new story. Put a new song in our heart. Renew our spirits. Bring us to life by your Holy Spirit. Why? It's by grace we've been saved. Just by grace, because you love us. Not because we're worthy, God. To every heart in this room who is tempted to think that they're disqualified from being used by you in a powerful way in this world because of their own selfishness, sinfulness, cowardice, worldliness, God, would you confront that by your Holy Spirit? May we hear the voice speaking to us. If you love me, then come. Come follow me. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Understand. I sing to know that God.